This is Jesus in Nazareth, his very first visit back to his hometown after having left and commencing his public ministry. He will live in Capernaum, that's uh, south of Nazareth, oh, maybe about a day or half a day's journey or so, it's not very far. But Capernaum is going to be his base of operations from now on throughout his Galilean ministry, the roughly years period of time that he'll be up in Galilee ministering. This is now his second year in ministry. When I was on vacation this last month, I had planned, I had taken probably about 15 books with me. You know, over the year, the things accumulate. You know, they stack up on your desk. I had a stack of books on my desk at home, a stack of books here. People hand you things, papers, articles, and you just can't ever quite get to them, and you, you look for a space of time to kind of get to all that stuff. So I thought, oh, this is great. Take a little extra time off, and I'll get through all my reading. And I had all the best intentions. I think I read one and a half books. As hard as I tried, I just could not get motivated to read. And I have a tendency to be a, a, a workaholic. I, I work long and hard. And I, I, I think that I, I probably derive a, a sense of worth you know, I'm a worthwhile person, look how hard I'm working, that sort of thing. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. <laughs> but I started to really be miserable on my vacation. And I thought to myself, I said, why am I so miserable? And uh, my wife noticed that I was kind of mopey around and wasn't really enthusiastic about being away. And, enjoying the vacation. And I thought and thought and thought, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me, I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling guilty because I'm not being productive. And I was whipping myself. You ever do that? Start beating yourself up, say, oh, sleeping until noon. <laughs> what a luxury. <laughs> laying around by the pool, not doing your reading. But you know, in the midst of it all, and, and this ties in with the message, there's a point to this. <laughs> in the midst of it all, I began to once again know and understand and appreciate and benefit by God's grace. though I was condemning myself and beating myself up. It dawned on me that God wasn't displeased with me. He said to me, why don't you just have a nice day? <laughs> it's okay to sleep till noon. You need the rest. And getting the rest is being productive. Productive. 
And I thought, duh. <laughs> but I tell you that little story, and, 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 and it dovetails around God's graciousness and our, or my, apprehension once again. Now, it's not something that I don't already know, but it's something that I need to be reminded of fairly regularly. Because I slip back into my old modes, my old legalistic patterns and habits, as I'm sure some of us do. You, you, You know all this stuff, but life just has a way of getting moving, you know, and and you're running like heck to keep up, and things are getting higher and higher and higher. And we need to know that God doesn't mean for it to be as difficult, I think, as we make it. Life. Life is hard enough. We don't need to complicate it anymore. And his grace is absolutely wonderful. When once again, you apprehend it. Once again, you rest in his grace. Now, when he comes to Nazareth, he's, uh, he comes to Nazareth, Nazareth in the midst of a preaching tour throughout Galilee, visiting all the towns, all the cities, all the villages, if you will, in Galilee, going into their synagogues, and teaching and preaching. And he's preaching a message of grace, which is very, very difficult for most people to apprehend. The people of Nazareth don't apprehend the message of grace, and they end up rejecting him. We have a difficult time receiving grace from one another. If we have a difficult time receiving grace and nice things, you know, we say, oh, yeah, 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 sure. They say, oh, I really, yeah, okay. Well, we want to believe it. We don't. Those are nice words, but we discount the messenger. Am I making sense? And so then we don't benefit by it. We don't benefit by the grace that others, and certainly God, wants to shower on our life and bless us with. And that's exactly what happens in Nazareth. The people in Nazareth don't benefit by Jesus' gracious words, his message of grace and favor. And I want us to to look at this a little bit and derive some sense of from Jesus' own mission, from his own statement of purpose and statement of mission here in this passage, I want us also to derive a statement of mission and a statement of purpose for our life. I think it's valuable. So read with me from verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now remember, Nazareth is his hometown. He has not been back since he left. It's been about a year now. He's obviously well-known in Nazareth, but now he's back, but he's not back as the carpenter's son or the village carpenter himself. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. Now notice the next four words. You might want to underline these next four words. It's okay to write in your Bible. As was his custom. Those four words 
are very, very significant. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. Jesus had a custom. It was his habit to go to church every week. Isn't that interesting? That phrase, as was his custom, or as was his habit, is used only in two places in the Gospel accounts, all four of them. The other place is also in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 9, but it's used in the context of describing his habit or his custom of privately praying and worshiping in the Garden of Gethsemane, as was his habit, as was his custom. So Jesus had a habit of prayer and worship, not only private prayer and worship, but also public prayer and worship. He would regularly spend time with the Lord, just he and himself, and publicly with others. Now, you need to know something about the synagogues. The worship service on the Sabbath in the synagogue was notoriously boring. It was composed of long prayers that would last for uh, literally hours. And then uh, several readings on the Sabbath, they would have seven readings from the Scripture by seven different people. A priest, a Levite, and uh, five notable men in the congregation or maybe visiting uh, from other areas would be invited to, to, to read the Scriptures. And they would all do so, and each one would comment. And the service would last a considerable length of time. And most of these people who were speaking were extremely boring. Now you can imagine the service would be very, very boring. In fact, uh, Alfred Edersheim uh, has a... a Tremendous book. It's called, some of you are aware of it, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's about that thick, and he's just chock full of, uh, of um, background and uh, insights and information, and uh, I read him and study him a lot. He comments, he has a whole chapter in his book just on the, the worship services in the synagogue, and he uh, expounds considerably uh, about how boring these services were. And, you know, it was not an uncommon thing for people to sleep through the entire service. And the speakers were, were expected and, in fact, used... I mean, they would do things like they'd shake people, you know. <laughs> they would tell funny stories. They would do anything they could to keep the people, keep them awake. Isn't that wonderful that we don't have that problem here? <laughs> Especially when we sit in the front row, huh, Dan? <laughs> The point I think it is very, very significant here at the onset of this particular passage is that Jesus had a custom. He understood that there was significant value in going to church every week. He didn't miss. As boring as those services were, now you and I, you know, we're, well, you, not so much I, I have to be here. <laughs> But if the, if the service was really boring, week after week after week, if it wasn't relevant, if, we, if it didn't make sense to our life, if there was no music, and it was just droning, don't anybody say anything. <laughs> I'm being very vulnerable here now. <laughs> then we would not come back. We'd say, oh, I don't want to go to church. Oh, it's so boring. And there's, 
there's literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who have a view to church as being boring. Christians, people who have been raised in the church, it's boring. I don't get anything out of it. Is church valuable? Is it worthwhile coming? Now, we nod our heads yes. Sometimes we do it mechanically because that's what we're supposed to say. But Jesus understood the value of attending synagogue service or church from our context regularly. That was his custom. Think about this. There is a direct and definite relationship between times, certain stated times and places, i.e. 8 o'clock Sunday morning. There is a relationship between coming here, being in this building at 8 o'clock Sunday morning to make sure of our worship, to make our worship certain. Now the comment is often made. I've heard it, you've heard it. Maybe we've made it at some point or other. Well, isn't God everywhere? I mean, why do I have to go to church to worship God? Can't I worship Him out there on the golf course Sunday morning? Well, yes, theoretically. I mean, He is everywhere, isn't He? The Bible teaches us He's omnipresent. And theoretically, you could worship Him out on the golf course on Sunday morning. But how realistic is that? How practical is that? Do you actually worship him out on the golf course Sunday morning? I mean, there may be some passing thoughts. Uh, I remember uh, one year going up to the mountains during the winter and not going to church on Sunday and thought, well, I'll have church on the lift. Going up on the lift, all this beautiful snow, I said, Oh, God, praise you for the snow and the wonderful skiing. Well, it's not quite the same. See, so I think there's something, too. Jesus understood the value of place and time, the regularity to make sure of and to make certain his expression of worship. Am I with, are you with me? Am I making sense to you? I mean, we're, we're weak, fallible beings. We, we need these kinds of things. We need these institutions. We need stated times. Not in and of themselves, but as instruments to make sure that we're reminded once again and that God does receive worship. It's glorious to gather together to sing, isn't it? There's a second thing I think is important to understand about regular worship attendance is that those who are non-believers or those who observe your life, if they observe you not valuing regular worship attendance, what statement does that make to them about worship attendance? Not valuable. But if they observe your life and they see you going week after week after week after week, and they see reflected in your life, not hypocrisy, but genuineness, sincerity, 
godliness as a result of your being part of the body week after week after week after week, as they see your growth and your maturity and your genuineness, what impact do you think that might make in their life when they come and say, you know, I see you going to this church week after week after week after week. What can you possibly find there that's interesting? And you say, come and see. Church can actually be fun, can't it? Church can be enjoyable. You can actually look forward to being with the congregation, to going to church. I do. When I first started coming to Hope Chapel, I didn't know the church could be like this. I didn't know the church could be fun. I didn't know that you could actually, or you were supposed to enjoy yourself. <laughs> I grew up in a background that church for me was not enjoyable. It was a drudgery. It was a duty. It was a legal responsibility. It wasn't something I looked forward to. It was something I was marched off to growing up as a child. And at the end of the church service, the, the announcement would be made, go in peace. Services ended. And the response from the people would be, thanks be to God. <laughs> Some people, of course, meant it one way. Other people meant it another way. <laughs> I would always say, God, thanks be to God. <laughs> But you see, when, when people see that, that we value regular church attendance and participation, that has a tremendous impact on their life. Tremendous impact. You may not have said a word to them, but they observe your life. Our, our lives are walking epistles. Do you know that? Letters to other people who are observing. They read us. Do they not? There's a third thing I think is very, very significant. Jesus understood about regular worship attendance. Church is fellowship. Church is fellowship. We've got to be with people like ourselves fairly regularly. And we don't exclude ourselves from integrating into the world. We don't exclude ourselves from touching people who we were once like. But we need regularly to be with each other to keep the fire hot. And without regular church attendance, I think you find that your involvement in the life of the church, now I'm not talking about necessarily the institution, but the involvement in the life of the body of Christ fulfilling the giftings and the callings and the role and the place that God has specially designed and carved out for you, your involvement there is non-existent. I think everyone here would testify, and I certainly, this has been my experience, that coming and being involved in engaging the discipline of regular church attendance has drawn me further and further and further into the life of the church and given me a greater and greater and greater hunger for participating in the life of the church and expanded my vision of the kingdom of God and given me a richer understanding of what it's all about.
And hence, I've been able to devote my life more and more and more to God's purposes rather than to the world's purposes. Are you with me? See, regular church attendance is vital, in essence, for several reasons. And Jesus, I believe, understood the significance of these reasons. He understood the value of attending church regularly. That was his custom. That was his custom. Now, in our congregation, we have some 4,000, 4,500 people attend this church, on and off. Many of you attend regularly. I recognize you week after week after week, and for that I give thanks. But some of you come on and off, and hence remain on the periphery of things for one reason or another. I want to urge you to, to learn from his example. We say things like, I want to be like Jesus, don't we? Or if we don't say them, there's, there's, sense, there's certainly this, this uh, sense about our life that, that that's the direction in which we must be moving if we are, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, being conformed to the image of Christ. If we are, in fact, to look more and more like him, then his example is essential to us. Now hear me. The temptation and the tendency for every one of us is to say and or think, oh gosh, I've got to come to church every week now. No, 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 no. Not got to. You get to. See, it's a whole shift in your way of thinking. This is, this is a great privilege, a great opportunity. You know how many people around the world cannot assemble like this? I got a letter from a lady in our church who's been in China for the past several years. She is a teacher at one of the major universities in Langshao province. And she's going to Russia uh, this next year for a year. She's on loan from the institute in China to go up to Russia to teach. She wrote me a letter, and she, and she communicates with me regularly. She said in this last letter this week, that the persecution of the church is very, very, very severe in China. And she has a little group of believers. See, she's a missionary, but she teaches in the university, and, she, and the hunger is unbelievable. But they're not allowed to meet publicly. Material is confiscated. When I write to her, I have to use euphemistic terms. I have to say, well, I spoke to dad today. Can't say, God bless you. Can't say, I prayed for you. Can't say, I said, spoke to dad today. He said, things are well in hand. Don't worry about this and such. I said, the family's doing well. <laughs> you see, you've got to speak in those kinds of terms because they open her mail and they read it. But we have the great privilege of being able to meet together. There may be a day, and you've heard me say this before, there may be a day when we're not able to meet together. It's very interesting. Right now in uh, Berkeley, city Berkeley has imposed a tax on the church. I think we're beginning to see the erosion of the tax-exempt status, the freedom of worship. I think at some point the church may have to indeed go underground. And if you're not accustomed to gathering together, then when the church goes underground you're going to miss out on the fellowship. 
You're not going to know who is a Christian, who isn't, who you can trust, just like uh, Mary over in China. She does, she, they don't know who they can trust. Everybody is so suspicious. And it could get that way here. So there's lots and lots of reasons why we need to value regular fellowship, regular attendance, being together regularly. For the purpose of not just our own benefit, but for worshiping God. Isn't he worthy that, that all of us raise our hands to him? Isn't he worthy that all of us praise him and say, you're a great God? Sure he is. So I want to commend to you Jesus' example that it be your custom to attend church regularly. There's such a thing as no excuse Sunday. Did you know that? Let me give you some illustrations. In order to make it possible for everyone to attend church next week, we are planning a special no excuse Sunday. Cots will be placed around the church for those who say Sunday is my only day for sleeping in. Eye drops will be available for those whose eyes are tired from watching TV too late on Saturday night. <laughs> we will have steel helmets available for those who believe the roof will cave in if they show up for church. <laughs> Blankets will be furnished for those who complain that the church is too cold. Fans will be on hand for those who say the church is too hot. We will have hearing aids available for those who say the pastor doesn't talk loud enough, and we'll have cotton for those who say the pastor speaks too loudly. <laughs> Scorecards will be available. <laughs> there will be actually some relatives available uh, for those who like to go visiting on Sunday. We'll have TV dinners available for those who claim they can't go to church and cook dinner too. And one section of the church will be available. We'll have some grass and trees for those who can see God in nature, especially on the golf course. And the last point is that uh, the sanctuary here will be decorated with both Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies to create a familiar environment... for those who have never seen the church without them. <laughs> so if you've been one of those who have been complacent about public worship and the importance of it, let Jesus' example speak to your heart. So he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. This was the normal custom. When someone would read from the scriptures, they would stand up. And then when they would expound on the scriptures or comment, they would sit down. And so, of course, Jesus stands up to read. Now, Jesus is going to read from the prophet Isaiah. As I said earlier, there are seven readings. The first six were from the law. The law of Moses, or the first five books of the Old Testament. The last, the seventh reading on the Sabbath was always from the prophets. So Jesus is the last to read. So they've gone through the whole service 
A lot of people are tired. Some are still sleeping. And Jesus is the last one to read. Now when they uh, had the readings, people just didn't open the scriptures and choose to read wherever they wanted. There was a regular yearly schedule of scriptures that were to be read. Just like our daily Bible, there was a special reading for the day. This is the same thing. There are special passages to be read on the Sabbath, as well as other feast days and festivals and so forth. So the passage in Isaiah has already been set out. This is the passage that's to be read this day. Isn't it an interesting coincidence that Jesus is in Nazareth on the day that Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is to be read? Christianity is full of coincidences, isn't it? Have you ever found that to be true? The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So the attendant would go to where all of the scriptures, the scrolls, were kept in an ark, in a chest. And he looked through and he got the scroll of Isaiah because that was the, the, the prophet that was to be read. He hands it to Jesus. Jesus already knows what passage is to be read. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And it's in this passage where Jesus announces his role, his mission, his purpose. He announces God's grace to the nation of Israel via Nazareth. The people in Nazareth are going to reject him as symbolic of all of Israel rejecting him. It starts here in Nazareth. Here is where the opposition begins to surface. And it surfaces in the face of him announcing what? God's wrath and judgment? No, his grace. We have a difficult time receiving grace. Sometimes because we have a difficult time receiving the messenger who brings the message of grace. As I said earlier, sometimes we discount people who really want to bless us, really want to say something nice. We discount them and then end up discounting the message and not being blessed, not being graced, not benefiting. Jesus has a mission, and in that mission he has five goals, and I want to talk about those for just a couple minutes. He has good news for the world's troubled good news not more bad news and his mission the church is meant to continue we are to be people of grace people who bring good news let's read the passage unrolling it he found the place where it is written the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now he stops reading at that point. Now if you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 61, in fact, I want you to do that. Go back to Isaiah chapter 61 
And I want you to notice where Jesus stops reading. He stops mid-sentence in the passage. Where he concludes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the passage actually goes on to say, and the day of the vengeance of our God. So he stops where essentially there's a comma. That comma represents 2,000 years. At the first coming, he did not come to pronounce the vengeance of our God. The second coming, he will bring that vengeance to bear. That comma that separates those two phrases is represented by 2,000 years, the period between his first and second coming. That says volumes about what he came to say. Remember what John said earlier. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but he came into the world to what? To save it. And he's communicating this very clearly. He's communicating to those in Nazareth that he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the Savior. Five goals. Preach good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Release the oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Are those five goals, do you think, predominantly temporal, earthly, visible, physically, or are they predominantly spiritual, do you think? Let's have a vote. How many think that they're more temporal? How many think they're more spiritual? A lot of you aren't voting. In a sense, they are both, aren't they? But they're predominantly spiritual. But the spiritual always is the foundation for that which which we see. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me. He is the Lord's anointed. That's what the Christ means. That phrase, the Christ, the Lord's anointed. He is the Messiah. He's making a claim, a bold claim, right here to the people in his own hometown. And remember, Israel is in a time of messianic expectation. There's a heightened sense that the Messiah is going to appear and deliver us from the domination of the Romans. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Who is the poor? Or who are the poor? Which is correct? Are. Who are the poor? Now, we just tend to think that word poor, you know, poor people. We don't tend to think of ourselves as poor. But it's only when we begin to see and understand and know that we are poor in spirit, as opposed to proud and haughty and confident and all that. Everybody is poor. Everybody is desperately needy, spiritually. Do you know that there is a, there's a, a dynamic, it's a marvelous dynamic, and we see this over and over. Uh, redemption and lift. Does that sound familiar to anybody? When you, when you are truly redeemed, when you are saved, especially if you are impoverished, 
that because you're redeemed and you begin to walk in obedience to the Lord, in other words, you begin to implement the principles that govern life that God has already set forth, there is, a, an, there is a, an effect in your life. It's called lift. When you obey God, life gets better. Redemption and lift. And so uh, for the poor, literally poor people, there is a powerful effect in their life. When they begin to honor God, God honors them. Draw near to me, he says, I'll draw near to you. Redemption and lift. We understand that about obeying God, doing what's right, getting blessed. Blessings come as a result of what? Obedience. Do they not? And so Jesus has been anointed to preach good news to the poor. Everybody needs to hear this good news, but only those who know that they are poor, only those who know that they're needy, only those who have had their fill of bad news are now ready and receptive to good news. Look in your own life and say, you know, I've had, I've had so much bad news. I can't handle any more bad news. I mean, you're just acquainted with bad news. Someone comes along and says, I have good news for you. Are you hungry? Are you receptive? He says, oh, tell me some good news. I'm ready. The same thing for those who, who are keenly aware that they are poor in spirit, that they are desperately needy spiritually. Those people are the most receptive. Those people who are going to receive the treasures of the kingdom of God and the good news that Jesus has. You and I, we have the same mission and the same purpose that Jesus did. When, when we look at people around us, people who are not saved, we must look at them as poor people. Spiritually needy, desperate people. Not be intimidated, not be afraid, not, not be put off by their apparent well-being. But if that person isn't saved, they are impoverished. And we've been anointed, just as Jesus has been anointed, we are a, a holy, royal priesthood. Do you know that? Peter says that. The church to preach good news to the poor. That's our mission, to bring good news to people who need some good news. Does anybody here know somebody who needs God's good news? <laughs> oh, people are desperate all over the place, aren't they? Do we slam them with it? No. We just kind of work our way into their life. We develop relationship. We gain trust so that they are more permeable. You've got to build relationship. But you won't build relationship for any real, real lasting change unless you begin to see and look with the eyes of Jesus himself with compassion. This person is impoverished, desperate. I get to bring them some good news. Now, we live in an instant society. We have drive through this, drive through that. You know, if you've got to wait two minutes in the McDonald's drive through line, it drives you crazy. And invariably, you know, you, 
you think, you drive in, you say, should I go in? Should I go through the drive through <laughs> You guys do that too? You think, how can I get in and out quickest? You, you know, you scan the, the parking lot, you look at the drive through line, you say, hmm. It's like flipping a coin in a, in a second in your mind. Invariably, if you're like me, you get in the wrong line. You say, I knew I should have parked and gone in. There's no such thing as an instant relationship. These things have to be cultivated. Relationships have to be cultivated. And if God gives you visibility and brings you and plants you in the midst of people's lives who are not saved, you have a great privilege of being a light in that midst. Begin to cultivate those relationships. Don't go for the instant kill. Don't go for the quick touchdown. Just take it one step at a time. Develop trust. Let those people see that you're genuine and, 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 and faithful and responsible. Cultivate them so that they will hear you. And they will, by comparison, look at their life and your life, not justifying, but rather saying, you know, there's something different about your life. What is it? I have Jesus in my heart. They say, what do you mean? You tell them. You say, I've got good news for you. We don't slam them. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Originally, the prisoners were in Babylon. Isaiah would prophesy that they would be carried off into captivity, but God would return them, restore them, freedom from the prisoners. They'd be brought back and restored to their country. That people who were literally in prison would be brought out of prison and restored to their families, that slaves would be given their freedom. All of this speaks to the spiritual prison that people are locked up in. And Jesus understood powerfully, and he communicates to us, the same concept that people are in prison. People are locked up. Locked up in the prisons of their own minds, their own narrow ways of thinking, godless paradigms, guilt, the prisons of varieties of compulsive kinds of behaviors. They feel locked up. I can't get out of this. I can't get out. I'm so afraid. Varieties of phobias. And on and on it goes. People are in prison. There may not be physical bars there, but they feel just as if there were. And Jesus actually says to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. There is freedom. Go free. There are lots of Christians. There's some sitting in this group this morning. Though you profess Christ and you believe with all your heart as best you can, you're still in prison. There's something that has gripped your life, that you're trapped by, you have not been able to break out of, you cannot understand why. Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. 
He says, I am the truth. When you know Jesus, he sets you free. That's part of the reason why fellowship is so important. It's part of the reason why reading this book is so important. That's why the, the varieties of spiritual disciplines of prayer and, and, and regular time with him is so important. Because it's through, the, through those disciplines, through that relationship with him, that he sets you free. And it may not come instantaneously. For some people, it does. Some people come to Christ, and man, they're set free from drug addictions and alcoholism, cigarettes, I mean, on and on and on. And they go, wow, it's just, I came to Jesus and my whole life. But others come to Christ, and, and it's not quite as instantaneous. And so the temptation for them is to give up. I've heard people say, you know, I've, I've tried Jesus. I've tried that Jesus thing. It just doesn't seem to work for me. Don't quit. Don't give up. Persevere. Walk by faith. Press on into that relationship. Because it's in the context of that relationship and the enlarging of that relationship and the richness of that relationship with Jesus as you press on into it that there is the freedom. Just think of the context of, a, of, a, of an intimate man-wife marriage relationship. As those two people press on into that relationship, don't people enter marriage tentative? Sure they do. Absolutely. They're scared to death. They're going, oh man, I hope this works. I don't know, you know. <laughs> or they enter with all the, the best hopes and desires and, and aspirations, but they're still scared to death down inside. And after a few days and weeks, uh, there, there is an apparent insecurity. And when the arguments come up and the disagreements, they go, oh, is it going to fall apart? Does he hate me? Does she hate me? People think these kinds of things, don't they? But as those two people press on into that relationship, as they press on in, as they engage it, Jesus is pressing in, isn't he? Sure he is. It just means for us to keep on with him. Keep on with him. Come on. Keep working on the relationship. Because as you do, you grow more secure. My wife and I were talking about our marriage on our vacation. We were just sitting out by the pool, and she says, she says to me, ah. <laughs> now, any wise husband understands what that means. <laughs> That's a sigh of contentment. That's a sigh of security. That's a sigh of, oh, I'm so happy. Now, we don't have a perfect marriage, but we work on it. We work on it. We have perfect communication, but we work on it. I don't always treat her the way I should, but I, and I confess that to her. I say, you know, I don't always speak as kindly to you as I should. Sometimes I bark orders around the house. You know, she and Michael look at me. <laughs> and then, you know, and I'll say, oh, man, I'm sorry. I did it again. But it's in the context of a growing relationship that you feel free. That you feel free. I can be me. 
I can relax. He or she isn't leaving. I'm accepted. Are you with me? And then the chains and the things just fall off. The, the bars go down. And you and I have the same wonderful privilege to announce freedom to the prisoners. And they're prisoners all around us, aren't they? And, and, and you don't have to be a great theologian. You don't have to be a great evangelist. You just have to find people who are in bondage, find people who are afraid, find people, and they're all around us, and just talk to them about Jesus. And just keep encouraging them. Come on, just keep coming. Connie, just keep coming. Don't, don't, don't give up. Just keep coming. Come on. And you don't have to answer all their questions. You don't have to be the, the Bible answer man. You don't have to be the brilliant theologian. You just have to be the encourager. Just keep coming. Jesus knows. I don't have all the answers. Jesus knows. Come on. Come on. There's freedom to be had. Is that hard? It's simple. But it's difficult, huh? Yeah, it sure is. But when you understand and you've experienced that kind of freedom in your life, then you have much more confidence to announce it to others. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, the gospel accounts are full of, of evidence and opportunities and instances where Jesus literally gave sight to the blind. But what, why did he do that? Well, certainly he had compassion on those who were blind, and they came and asked and so forth, and he reached out and he healed them. But I think there's more to that healing. I think it's, 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 it's a, a living parable, a living testimony, that he has really come to give sight to the blind. Not just the physically blind, but all who are spiritually blind. Everything we do, every relationship we're in, we must see the possibilities for redemption in those relationships. How can I minister to this person? Now, you may not share the gospel with them, but if they feel the grace of God coming for you, they may not even know that's the grace of God. You are going to be a powerful instrument in that individual's life, no matter where you are. Doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist. Doesn't matter if you're an accountant. Doesn't matter if you're a computer scientist. Doesn't matter if you're a teacher. Doesn't matter if you're a homemaker. Doesn't matter what you are, a student. That you look at people and see them, they're blind. There's a man in the Gospels, in John's Gospel, who says, I was blind and now I see. That's really a metaphor for what's happened to us. Isn't that true? We were blind, but now we see. When our eyes were open, when literal scales, as it were, fell off of our eyes, and, and we, we began to see a whole new world has opened up. When I became a Christian, a whole new world opened up to me. I never knew this existed. I never knew church could be like this. I had always aspired to, I always had down deep inside of me this, this sense, this longing, there had to be something. This cannot be all there is. There has to be one thing. And I had a desperate desire and hunger and need for it. I knew that, but I didn't know what 
would meet that need. And then I, too, said, I was blind, but now I see. I had church people all around me. The kingdom of God was here. I didn't see it. First time I read the Bible, the very night I got saved and I made a commitment to Jesus, someone stuck a Bible in my hand. I had never read the Bible in my life, although we had a Bible at home growing up. We had the Holy Bible on the coffee table in the living room. Passed down through the family generations. Big black one. Holy Bible. No one ever read it. I just sat there ominously on the coffee table. Spoke of the tradition of the family. One day when no one was home, a little kid, I was about 12, 13 years old, I went at the Holy Bible. I lifted up the cover, not knowing what to expect. There's a mystery. And the pages immediately crumbled. It was that old, you know, brown, crumply paper. And I kept opening and I turned, finally turned to a page that didn't crumble in my hands. I was already in trouble, so I may as well keep going, right? <laughs> and I began to read. I didn't understand a word I read. It didn't make any sense to me. So I said, oh, irrelevant, close it up. But the night I got saved, I got, uh, someone handed me a little Bible. And I went home that night. And I read the book of Romans. I didn't know where to read. They didn't tell me where to read. Give me no instructions. He says, go read this book. So I went home and I did one of these things, you know. <laughs> Let it fall open. It fell open to the book of Romans. I read Romans six times that night. I went, wow, wow, this is great. This is great. I was overwhelmed. I was blown away, if you will, if I can use that expression, by what I read in the book of Romans. I have some affection for the book of Romans, some of you, <laughs> some of you know. Jesus' goal was to open men's eyes to the wonder and to the majesty and to the nearness of God. How can you appreciate him unless your eyes have been opened? How can you stand in awe? How can you worship him? How can you say, oh, God, you're great? Unless your eyes have been opened. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, that the minds of unbelievers have been blinded by the God of this world, the God of this age. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People are blind all around us. But we get to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To release the oppressed. To be oppressed literally means to be pressed down with the weight of some great pressure. You ever felt that? You ever had the pressure of life? The pressure of work? the pressure of expectations, either from yourself or from others or from the world or from the church, <laughs> from your pastor. <laughs> to be weighed down, to be oppressed. There's spiritual oppression, worldly oppression, 
self-imposed oppression. There's oppression in every place. But the point is, I think all of us understand what it means to be weighed down, to be pressed down, a great weight upon us. We can barely carry it. Jesus came to release that pressure, to take that pressure off. As I said earlier, he means for our life to be exciting, not weighed down. He says in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, verses 28 through 30, speaking of the pressure of legalism, and that is something that is constantly with us. I experienced it on my vacation. I shared that with you earlier. Many of us experience that. We experience the pressure of performing in order to be accepted. Performing in order to be valuable and important and liked and so forth. If we're not performing, we're not valuable. If we're not performing, we're not acceptable. That's something that is with us all the time. And Jesus says in that passage, speaking of the legalism of the day, of Judaism, of the traditions of the Jews that weighed the people down and all the rules they had to keep. There was no joy in Judaism. No joy in their religion. Because it was all duty. And he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened. Come to me. I'll add to your burden. Is that what he said? No, he says, I'll give you what? Rest. He says, learn from me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is light and easy. You remember what a yoke was? A yoke was something you put around an oxen who would pull a cart or a plow or something. And if the yoke didn't fit the oxen, the plow wouldn't be pulled, nor would the cart. The, the ox would, would move about trying to get that thing to fit comfortably. And every farmer would, would, would match his yoke to his oxen to make sure it fit properly to get the maximum effect. Not to create discomfort for the oxen. And Jesus says, my yoke is light and easy. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke, he says, fits. And we too get to participate in releasing those who are oppressed. A man in the church shared with me last night that God has given him a unique, a unique vision for ministry. He happened to be, this is fascinating, he happened to be um, in the post office one day. I think he said it was the post office. He was here earlier this morning. He had to leave. And uh, he saw a woman putting up posters asking for donations to help the um, underwriting the cost of a friend's daughter who was in a coma in the hospital. She was 23 years old, gotten in an accident, has been in a coma. And I guess there's great financial costs being incurred by the family. So there was a general appeal. So he, he stopped talking to this woman and got some information and, and made a little donation. But then God spoke to him, and, and he's been seeing the girl in the hospital. She's in a coma. He's been communicating to her. He brought a Bible to the family. He's been reading to her. He came and told me this morning. We talked last night about this because he wanted to know if, if, if somehow 
she could be baptized. He shared the gospel with her, and she's able to respond in her coma. She's able to blink as an affirmative response. You would know that, huh, Betty? That's use your nurse and all that. And so he, he shared the gospel with her, and she received Christ. And, and then he came, and he told me all this last night, and he says, he says, do you suppose we could baptize her? I said, yes, you can baptize her. So, I mean, he wants the official guy to come and do it, you know. I mean, I'm the only one that can baptize. No, you can baptize. You're a minister of the gospel. So I said, yeah, you can baptize. I said, just make sure that she knows who Jesus is. Explain baptism to her. And we talked a little bit about it, and he understood all that. He came this morning, first thing, came up to the top of the stairs, had his shirt and tie, he looked spiffy. I said, Steve, what are you doing back in church this morning? He says, I got some great news for you. And, and he said, you know the girl I told you about? She was baptized this morning at 7.30. Release the oppressed. And then he says to me, you know, he said, God spoke to me through her this morning to begin to, out, to reach out and to minister to those who are in comas. Who would have ever thought about a ministry like that? <laughs> are people in comas oppressed? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Are they in prison? I think so. But here's a man who God has given a clear vision, and he's taken it to release the oppressed. And to declare the year of the Lord's favor. To declare the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what does that mean, do you suppose? Beautiful picture. There was an event in Israel that happened every 50 years, or at least was supposed to happen. Every 50 years, the 50th year, according to Leviticus chapter 25, was called the year of Jubilee. How many know about that? The year of Jubilee was the year in which three things happened. All slaves were given their freedom. Does that sound kind of like it might fit with what we're talking about? All slaves given their freedom? The year of Jubilee was the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Jubilee, not only were all slaves uh, uh, released, but all debts were canceled. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Does that reach home, huh? <laughs> and if you had lost your property or, your, or some possessions that were important to you uh, because of some indebtedness and problems that had come up in your, in your family's life over the past 50 years, in the year of Jubilee, those properties and possessions were returned to the original families. The year of Jubilee. To declare the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that, that year of Jubilee, that year of the Lord's favor, is alluded to and is, 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 is described by different phrases. Jesus calls it the appointed hour. Paul calls it the appointed season in Titus. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he calls it the fullness of time. What is it? It's the messianic age. To declare that the kingdom of God is at hand and God's ready and willing to receive sinners unto himself. People who are in bondage. 
people who are blind, people who are oppressed, to come to him, and he would set them free. Now, Jesus is no longer here physically. He's no longer making this announcement himself physically, but he has passed on the mantle to who? The church. His mission, his fivefold mission, is our fivefold mission. And we can, with great confidence, share those same principles, those same truths, those same concepts with other people as we look around and just encourage them. Now, if you read on in the passage, you find that the response, he sits down and he says to the people, now here comes the comment. So the reading of the scripture was standing up, sitting down comes the comment. He says to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa, that is a bold statement. Now they've been hearing these wonderful things. And they're, they're responding, they're saying, gosh, gracious words. But, this is Joseph's kid. They depreciate him. When they depreciate the messenger, they depreciate the message. They're not able to receive the message. They may say wonderful things. Boy, you're saying nice things. But I can't receive it because you said it. And I know who you are, and I know what you're all about. They discount him. They reject the messenger, hence they reject the message, and they disqualify themselves. That's why Mark says, Mark has, has another account of this, and Mark says in his account that Jesus could do no miracles in Nazareth. Why? Does that mean the, Nazareth, the people of Nazareth could tie God's hands? No. They, they weren't postured to receive his grace. They reject Jesus. And part of that rejection is that they demand that he do some miraculous sign. Prove yourself. I mean, you've been doing all these wonderful signs throughout all of Galilee. You've been going to all the other towns and villages and, and healing people, giving sight to the blind. Doing all, do some of that stuff here. Then we'll believe you. In several places in the scripture, God repudiates that attitude, and he says, I'll give you signs and wonders, but you still won't believe. And remember, many of the Galileans were, were what we would call miracle mongers. They were just into seeing the sensational. But they would still reject Jesus ultimately. He knew that. When we demand a miracle of him, he won't do it. He wants us to have relationship with him. And out of his graciousness and mercy, his, his love and his healing power just automatically flows into our life. So they reject him. They're so furious and so angry when he, in effect, tells them that he is moving on, as did Elisha and Elijah, because they were rejected by Israel. They have a birthright. We have a right. He says, no. They're so angry that as a whole crowd, they rise up in the synagogue and they force him out. Stand up, Dan. I want to demonstrate what they're doing. It's like, it's like Dan is one guy, and so we all rise up and we just do this to him. 
and we, <laughs> and we force him. He was forced out of the synagogue, down the road to uh, what's a little cliff kind of situation. And no one person was going to push him over the cliff, but the whole crowd, just by their momentum, would push him over. Well, what's the last sentence in this passage? How does that read? <laughs> but he walked, what, right through the crowd and went on his way. Do you suppose that he was miraculously delivered from the threat of death? Absolutely. Does that have a, an application to our life? Absolutely. We don't need to be afraid or intimidated by any situation. We can go anywhere. We can be in any place. And we are assured of God's protection and his care until it's our time to go. <laughs> and when it's our time to go, and no, no thing is going to protect you. You see? I mean, here's a crowd. They're going to push him off the cliff and kill him. And he's able to walk right through them and go on his way, untouched, unharmed. In the midst of whatever intimidating or seemingly intimidating situation is before us, don't be afraid. Even if you think I'm going to be rejected, doesn't mean that you can't go share some good news. Why? Because you're Christ's ambassador, right? You're a sent one. You're an apostle, small a. But I'll tell you one thing. Unless you're accustomed to coming to church every week, unless you're accustomed to being part of the fellowship, you'll not catch the vision for the kingdom. For the kingdom will only just remain a trite slogan for you. But it's every week, week after week, week after week, hearing, thinking, confronting, being confronted by the truths of the word of God, the fellowship, deliberately entering into the discipline of public worship week after week, you find yourself inextricably drawn into the life of the kingdom. You find that to be true? I do in my own life. Without you, without the fellowship, without the encouragement, without the fire that goes on in the midst, set out there by myself, I'd die right out. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't be effective for the kingdom of God. You can't bring the power of God's good news to bear in the lives of other people without the support system of the church. You can't do it. And the more regular you are, the more effective you'll be. If you're serious. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You cannot come to this church consistently, very long, without having to be confronted with your life and your walk with Christ. It's just too uncomfortable to stay here. People say, oh, I'm not going to get involved there. They, they're serious. 